Let's pray one more time, ask God to bless our study, and then we'll get into another session here. Let's pray together. Father, oh Lord, we uh, thank you so much for your grace today. Thank you for waking us up and giving us strength and, and giving us breath and life and all things freely to enjoy. We pray especially that we would enjoy your presence, that we would enjoy um, the blessings that come to us, that flow uh, to us through your son Jesus. Thank you for every spiritual blessing, Lord, in the heavenly places, Lord. Thank you for encouraging us, Lord, in Christ and sustaining us uh, by your spirit, informing us by your word. Lord, we pray that you would build us up and encourage us in your love and in your truth. And so we look for your help now, Father. Give us guidance and give us a mind to understand what your word declares. Give us a, a spirit of of unity and a spirit of encouragement and zeal towards one another. Uh, help us to uh, build up one another. Uh, Lord, that's um, that's a true means of grace of church, Lord, to be able to come and, and to be strengthened by the brethren. And so we pray that you would help us to uh, just to seek out our brethren, to encourage them and pray for them and love them and fulfill all the one another's of Scripture that you command. So thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so... Just kind of uh, recapping our time in the uh, covenant of Noah here, and uh, there's the definition that we've been working with. I'm going to probably be doing a lot of this today, actually. Uh, let's see if I better find one now. Oh, there, that works. That works. It's blue, like the waters, the flood waters. It fits the theme. Uh, what we said about the covenant of Noah, of course, is that the covenant of Noah it can be defined as God's non-redemptive covenant, uh, where God has promised to dispense universal grace to all of humanity temporarily in order to preserve humanity for his eschatological purpose in Christ. The covenant of Noah is God's covenant of common grace. And when we thought about common grace, uh, there was a lot of different things that we looked at. We looked at... Um, uh, these various uh, components, I talked about the character, the function, the extent, and the goal. You can see that up there at the top there. And this is, these are just my notes, so they're kind of, you know, you're kind of swimming around in all this. But, you know, I'll, I'll try to point out some of the important stuff for us, okay? Um, let's see here. We talked about the character uh, being that of common. Why did theologians call it common? Because it is uh, that which extends to everybody. And it's also common uh, because uh, we can see it in just life, right? We see the grace of God that Noah is pertaining to uh, in every area of our lives, and so we see common grace on the way here. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I saw the police officer sitting there, had to pump the brakes a little bit, so I'm rushing to church. It's like, that's common grace, you know? Just making sure pastors are going the speed limit on the way to church, you know? What an incredible example of common grace, you know? It takes no salvific grace whatsoever for him to sit there and be ready to give me a ticket, you know, but it is common grace. And and we also talked about, um, you know, to play on the police thing is, uh, you know, we talked about the uh, covenant of Noah, how that, in a sense, you know, really sort of solidifies the whole concept of the state and how the state in the world, uh, whether uh, Christian or not, is ordained by God. Uh, we know that because um, Scripture is very clear as far as that goes, and I don't know that I got into 
the extent of that in, in the state, and I don't know how much we'll talk about that today, but I thought, you know, let's turn there real quick. Romans chapter 13, uh, I thought that, I thought about this just in association with uh, the covenant, but I thought, you know, we talk about the state, we talk about common grace, we talk about the covenant of Noah, but, you know, uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 is the crux interpretum. It is the key text, in other words, that deals with uh, the role of the state in the world and how it functions. And what I'm saying is that Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, is rooted in the covenant of Noah, um, not in the Mosaic covenant, for example, right? A big distinction. The Mosaic covenant is a particular covenant with a particular people, namely Israel, Right, but what Romans is talking about is not talking about Israel. Right, Romans is talking about the universal authority of all governments. So that's why he says every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Um, you know, during this time, the governing authorities that Paul is writing to in to the Romans is Rome. So he's not talking about Israel, right? So he says, for there is no authority except from God. And so this is his way of just kind of setting up the idea that authority ultimately comes from God, right? That all authority has some sort of divine principle to it. And those which exist are established by God. I mean, think about the gravity of that statement. Every government that exists is established by God. Wow. Is that your worldview? (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, what that means is that Nero was established by God. You know, Obama was established by God. Hitler was established by God. So God raises up and tears down, you know what I mean, and all serves his redemptive purpose. It's not because he's trying to have a perfect country on earth in this this age, right? That's not why. If that's what he wanted, then he wouldn't raise up evil dictators, right? But he ordains those things in order to accomplish his purpose on earth, his redemptive purpose. Uh, But still... Even then, you know, like I mean, every your typical uh, government, no matter where you go, I mean, you know, they, they abide by certain moral universal principles. I mean, think about the, the the basketball players from UCLA. You know, only know about this because I'm a Laker fan and I Lonzo Ball and his little brother, you know, whatever. And they were over in China, you know, playing basketball over there for college. And and lo and behold, these three U- UCLA players, they go out, you know, thinking that you know they're Americans, and so they you know they rule the world, of course. And so they're over in China. They go to this like fashion show or something, and they steal these really high end glasses, you know, these sunglasses, these really high end expensive glasses. And they, at three different locations. Well, guess what? Uh, the Chinese, you know, caught them. And the police caught them and showed up at the hotel and, you know, uh, come with us. And so it's like, wow. And so they, they were uh, threatened with uh, up to 10 years in prison for stealing a pair of sunglasses. How'd you like to have that? <laughs> that government, right? I mean, I don't, I'm pretty sure if you steal a pair of sunglasses here in America, you might get a misdemeanor. You're not going to get 10 years in prison. You know what I mean? I mean, think about that. And then, you know, Donald Trump takes credit for taking them out. You know, but it's all common grace. You know what I mean? It was common grace that the Chinese government has this universal moral uh, compass that says you shall not steal. You know what I mean? And it's common grace that that government, no matter how dictatorial and how communistic and how oppressive it is, it's still to some degree punishing evildoers, right? Which is exactly what it's saying here. 
So he says, you know, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Wow, look at that. So Christians are not, uh, they are not called uh, to be revolutionary in, in that sense. You know what I mean? We're not called to, that our primary calling is to overthrow wicked governments. Uh, there, you know, of course, you have to balance this out with Acts chapter 5. And the government tells you to do something that is directly going to violate your Christian identity, like uh, don't preach the gospel, or you must celebrate homosexuality. Well, okay, well then, you know, we obey God, not man. You do to us as f- seems right to you. You know what I mean? If that means incarcerating every Christian on the face of the earth, <laughs> then I mean the government will just have to do whatever it wants. But our calling is not to try to you know, form a Christian coup and overthrow the government. You know what I mean? That's certainly not our... Because then that would, then that would show that our ambition is temporal, not eternal. You know, it would show us that our, that our ambition is to build an earthly kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom, right? So, you know, um, you know then he goes on to say, you know, um, and they who have opposed uh, will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, you know, so you try to dis- disobey the government. I mean, one prominent example that comes to mind is uh, Kent Hovind, a popular creation science guy, who went around the country, and I don't know how he got away with this for so long, went around the country teaching in churches. I was even in a church once where he was teaching. He was telling you, you don't need to have a, uh, you don't need to have a license. You don't need to have a Social Security number. Uh, and then he got to the point where I don't, you don't even need to pay taxes. And so he'd stopped paying taxes, and what happened? He got thrown in prison. Hello? Yeah. You know what I mean? The condemnation is upon yourself. Got his wife thrown in prison, too. You know, so think about that. And he had it all rationalized in his mind. The government has no right. You know, they're doing this illegally. You know, I, t- technically, I've found a law. There's a loophole here. I'm not supposed to be paying this government, but I think it violates my, like, yada, 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 yada. I mean, he should have just listened to Jesus. Render taxes to Caesar, you know what I mean? And, and, and Paul's going to quote that, right? He says, uh, the rulers are not the cause to, uh, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. I mean, that's kind of a true that's a truthism, right? I mean, that's kind of a universal truth. Uh, no matter where you go in the world, if you're seeking to do normative good, you don't really have nothing to fear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You can go have a vacation somewhere, and as long as you're not, you know, working with the cartels, <laughs> I mean, the government's going to leave you alone. If you're just there to have a good time or visit family, nothing's going to happen to you. You know what I mean? So it says, but, it says uh, but for evil. So you know, if, if you're if you're looking to do evil, then then that's a, then you should fear rulers. You know, do you want to have no fear of authority? Wow, look at that, huh? What a great lesson for your children, right? Start teaching kids right here. You know, like, look, this is why we have to fear authority. You know, fear mother and father. And, um, you know, and, and fear the authority of the church, fear the authority of the government, fear the authority in school or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Uh, be, be, uh, be reverent of these institutions that God has ordained. Uh, he says, do what is good and you will have praise from the same. So yeah, that's right. For it is a minister of God to you for good. Wow, look at that. What is a minister of God? Well, Ruling authorities, authority, right? The authorities, the, 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 the governmental authorities, going all the way back to verse 1, subject to governing authorities. So he said, that is a minister of God. Wow, that's some pretty, that's some pretty explicit language, you know? Um, 
Wow, amazing. For, he says, it's a minister of God to you for good. That's, that's its intended purpose. So, so think about that, right? God doesn't ordain these governments for the evil that they do. He ordains it for good reasons. Should they choose to do evil, well, that's on the government. You know what I mean? So that's its purpose anyway. He says here, um, where are we at? But if you do what is evil, be afraid. I like that. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. Wow, look at that. Uh, now let's discuss that because that is like the, talk about a crux interpretum. I mean, that's the key text for capital punishment, right? Is that justifiable? Uh, that you base capital punishment based on this text right here? They do not bear the sword for nothing? Why so, Robert? Mm-hmm. Now we think of Jesus even he lived by the sword, he died by the sword. So it kind of oh, very good. Kind of Amen. I mean, just kind of piggybacking on the Robert, they don't bear it for, you know, just just to have it. Right. <laughs> they're not gonna they're not gonna scratch your back with the sword. Right. Right? <laughs> uh the sword is for one reason, and that's to cut you down. You know what I mean? If they have to. <laughs> so, you know, the today, you know, authorities, they don't have guns for nothing. You know, you've got to respect, you know, and that. Also, so. I mean, it continues that with the, <laughs> the statement of, therefore, to be an avenger who brings wrath on one who practices evil. That's right. That's right. It's, 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 uh, that sword that they bear is an expression of the vengeance of God. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that is, that's a judgment of God, you know what I mean? If somebody gets caught doing something they shouldn't be doing, breaking the law, and a police officer shoots you righteously, um, then that is an expression of God's vengeance. Wow, that's amazing, you know? Uh, and, and we're thankful for that, though, right? I mean, if somebody's breaking into your home, seeking to harm you and your family, police officer comes in and shoots that person, you're going to be so utterly grateful for God's wrath and vengeance and justice, you know what I mean? That is an expression of common grace. That, that police officer that did that, he could be a pagan, he could be a Muslim, he could be an atheist, he could be agnostic. It doesn't matter. He still has the mantle of his ministry, uh, not because of his religion, but because of his covenant association with God under common grace. And so this kind of coming full circle, you know what I mean? It's the same common grace that existed prior to the flood and now after the flood. Prior to the flood, you know, even right after the covenant of grace, you know, um, after, you know, God says, I'll put enmity between your seed and your seed, and then the messianic promise, and then right after that, God promises that the world will go on and that man will still have to do things and live on this earth. And then we see that common grace again with Cain, who, though he was a murderer, he need not fear vigilante vengeance because God was going to protect him. So he pledged, he put an oath on Cain that God would protect him so that he will not be killed by society for what he did. You know, somebody just all of a sudden take matters into his own, your own hands and kill that. So already sort of preparing society to have a, a sense of justice and due process, right? Um, Praise God. I mean, you look at states that dive, you know, they sort of disintegrate into a vigilante, you know, sort of condition. I mean, it's just anarchy everywhere, you know, everyone for themselves type of thing. You know, it's crazy. They call them failed states, 
you know, where the government no longer has control of the people and everyone's just kind of con- trying to govern themselves. It's a total, total catastrophe. Um, what else does it say? It says, therefore, it's necessary to be subject, uh, uh, to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also be- for conscience sake. So in other words, you know, for your own conscience, and I mean, I think this is where, you know, things like paying your taxes and, you know, getting into this whole arena, you know, this is where you have to, you know, understand that you're violating your conscience because of what God teaches in his word when you do that. For because of this, you also pay taxes. <laughs> there we go. See, I told you, <laughs> right? For rulers are servants of God. Isn't that amazing? This is what I'm talking about in terms of the force of common grace. Uh, that's why you picked that word because it's the powerful force of common grace. So much so that these governing authorities, these rulers, are actually servants of God to some degree. Again, at a common grace level, not at a salvific level. Michael, do you have a question, sir? I'm not aware of it. I am no. I I can't claim any expertise in Mugabe's <laughs> removal. Uh huh. Right. Well, we shouldn't celebrate when the law is broken in any way whatsoever. But if the result is a form of righteousness that we can affirm, right, then we we sort of just live in the state that we're in. You know what I mean? And not. Uh, I don't think it's going to do us any good to try to protest what happened. You know what I mean? Maybe we disagree in principle. We say maybe that's not the way we would have went about it or a Christian should go about it. You know what I mean? But the fact that an evil dictator was removed, you know, and there is some redeeming value to what happened. You know what I mean? But should we plan to do these kinds of things? That's another, that's a, it's like a, you know, different question, you know. That's like a. Mm, yeah. 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 Sure. Oh, you're talking about Lindsey Vaughn. You're talking about the skier that she. She came out and said, I'm not, I'm, she's an Olympian and she's like, I'm going to compete, but not for Donald Trump. Right. Like she's protesting Donald Trump. And then, and then she gets out there and skis and hurts her back in the first thing, you know, and she's disqualified herself, you know, like, and it's just like, but you know, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> the wrath of God. <laughs> You shouldn't have said it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. For yeah, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Wow. Yeah, that is. I mean, think about the common grace of that. You know what I mean? I mean, even if you have a wicked, you know, unregenerate, you know, police officer, right? He is devoting himself to the service of something that's right. When they when they take upon themselves the mantle of you know, bearing the sword, you know, and all of that. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really good thing, you know. Um, I know even preaching the gospel, I mean, there's been times where, 
you know, I've been open air preaching, let's say, at UNT, and man, I was so thankful as a police officer because the crowd was starting to kind of crash in on me. And, you know, once I was preaching, and this police officer, I didn't even know he was there. I hadn't seen him all day. I didn't even know he was there. And they start, these kids started getting really, really angry, and, and that started coming. My circle was getting smaller and smaller. And this police officer literally, like, it, it, it felt as if he leapt into the center of the circle and he backed all the kids off, you know, and he said, you know, you can talk, but you cannot approach, you know, get back. But he said it yelling, you know, and I was like, wow, I was so grateful for common grace at that moment. <laughs> you know, thank you, Jesus. And therefore, he says, render to all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes is due, custom, this is interesting, custom to who custom is due. I was going to use my, if you come to us, if you come with us to Israel thing, but, you know, in light of what's going on right now in Israel, I don't know that any of you want to go to Israel now, but uh, we'll see, we'll see how things develop. But what I was going to say is like, you know, render, you know, custom to who custom is due. Okay, so if you go to Israel with us and the Temple Mount is open, Everyone has to wear pants. Women have to be covered all the way down to the ankle. And you do not have an option to disobey that, no matter how ridiculous you think it is. So custom to who custom is due. And if you want to go into that Palestinian territory, you have to obey their custom, you know, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's, you know, oppressive or chauvinistic or whatever. It doesn't matter. You have to do what you have to do. And Paul talks about the same thing in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10. I think it's verse 39. But he talks about the fact that, um, you know, giving no offense to anyone for anything. You know what I mean? And there he's talking customarily. Um, And then he spills over into some examples of that, uh, I think, even with head coverings. I think head coverings belongs to that principle of not wanting to give an offense. So in the Corinthian culture, for women to take off their head covering is unheard of. You know what I mean? So Paul is directing the church, you know, obey the custom there. You know, just submit to it so that you don't cause unnecessary hindrance to the gospel. You see? I mean, we would do that today, right? If you go into a really hard Muslim context, I mean, what are you going to do, ladies? Just not wear hijab just because, right? To prove how American you are? <laughs> Big mistake, you know what I mean? No, you're, you should obey the custom, you know? Especially if you're doing it for the, to be effective as a missionary, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So these are all aspects of common grace, you know? The character, the function, um, what is the function? Well, we talked about that already. I don't feel bad repeating all this stuff because I understand how complicated covenant theology is. Um, but the function of, uh, of, of the Noahic covenant is ultimately rooted in eschatology. Uh, Jesus taught that from Noah there is a direct analogy to the final judgment, as the days of Noah were. Right? I mean, just what Jesus says, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Right? In all those passages. So the sign of the covenant itself. What's the sign of the covenant? What's the sign of the Noahic Covenant? The rainbow. rainbow. So the sign itself is both a promise to preserve and a prediction to destroy, a prophecy to destroy, right? Because the rainbow is at one time, in one one way, the rainbow is protecting the world from being destroyed again through water, but as 2 Peter 3, verse 7 says, it is also being preserved now under fire, you know, as a matter of fact, Christ in his in his parousia, his coming, it says he will return in flaming fire. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. 
We'll look at that. Also, the extent of the covenant is cosmic, meaning that it stretches. Uh, you guys help me with it. Go to Genesis. Turn to Genesis with me. Genesis chapter 6. Sure, why not? No, no, Genesis 8. I'm sorry. Genesis 8. 8 and 9. You know, it's kind of where you need to be. Are we ever going to get out of the first couple chapters of Genesis, people? I feel like I've been there for about three years now. We did biblical theology. We did protology. We didn't get out of chapter 3. You know what I mean? Um, okay, so at the very end there, when I say cosmic is because God is willing to preserve the created order, including seasons and nature with common grace being extended to the non-human creatures, this is part of the covenant promise. So, you know, you see that at the end of verse chapter 8, right? What did he say? While the earth remains... That's, and I kind of made a big deal out of that statement, while the earth remains. So almost like already within the, within the, within the, um, the content of the covenant with Noah, uh, you already have you know, God setting up this sort of idea that is temporary because <laughs> the earth will not always remain, right? Uh, yeah, and, and I also you know, argued that Keep that verse in mind while the earth remains for the, the, the thorny theological debate that exists between, you know, what is the, new, the nature of the new heavens and the new earth? I talked to Pastor Liz about this too, but, you know, like, is it going to be a brand new heaven, brand new earth, meaning God is, like, going to annihilate the first heaven, the first earth, and create, you know, poof, ex nihilo, another creation, right? Or is it a renewed heaven and earth? So it's almost like this present heaven and earth, it will be dissolved broken down to some degree but it will not it will not cease to be you know it's kind of like there will be some sort of correspondence between the present heaven and earth and the coming new heavens and new earth and the people who argue that position would would point to the analogy of redemption right that just as you are redeemed in course part of you will correspond with the new you when you're glorified it's not like you're going to cease to be you. You will go into glorification, still you, right? So in the same way, the earth will go into a new heavens, new earth uh, condition, still as that, as that, as this earth and these heavens. Uh, want to take sides? You want to vote? <laughs> That's a tough one, you know. But uh, so this verse, while the earth remains, I mean, what the the implication there is? Maybe the, there's coming a time where the earth is not going to remain. Right? This earth will not be here anymore. Is that the implication? Okay, well, you know, but what he's saying here is that, of course, look at this, summer and winter. And so the covenant of Noah is not just preserving the animals and the humans and the plants. It's controlling the cosmos. It's making sure the sun still does what the sun still does and the moon still does what the moon still does. This is cosmic preservation. So that's why one theologian said the whole universe is preserved under the Noahic covenant. You know, any questions or statements or anything? There's really no wrong question. Might be a wrong answer. But, uh. I think it fits in nicely with Romans 8 and the you know, Greek and Romans. Mm-hmm. The creation groaning is evidence of that the creation is under the Noahic covenant. Yeah, 
know under a covenant that was affected that the yeah basically that that the that whole covenant being broken there brought about a curse okay for the things the covenant applied to right here this covenant is being applied to uh, creation of the world right oh that's good yeah yeah amen absolutely um let's see what else did i say uh, also the goal you know um the goal of the covenant is also eschatological, God preserving the world for a twofold purpose, for consummate judgment and for sovereign election. Uh, and, and, and that's right, you know, and that's sort of typified in the people of God being chosen to go into the ark and be ark dwellers. My notes kind of ran out right there. This is a rough draft, okay? You guys are looking at a rough draft here. These are not, this is going to be, Lord willing, be my desire, you know, that this is one day going to be a book. So I'm writing it like that, footnotes and everything. But I, I leave stuff half done sometimes, and so in one sense it's not really fair for me to do this to you, but what choice do you have? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Let's see how much I disagree when the book comes out. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, also, the typological function of the Noahic Covenant. I don't know if we covered this last time, but, um, man, there's so much trying to see you know you guys need some new material from last time but um yeah yeah that's right um in peter's train of thought what follows the glory parousia of the lord is a new creation uh like noah when the waters subsided and god reinstated the language of creation because if you look at chapter nine right again he's using the language of creation he's talking about well he does a lot of other things but look at verse seven as for you be fruitful and multiply populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it that's exactly the creation mandate in genesis chapter one verse 26 and 27 right and then in in other places but that's exactly so basically it's like repeating this is a new creational motif that's happening in the noahic covenant and noah is a pattern of a new creation Okay, and um, even somewhere in my notes, don't ask me where, but I even point to the fact that Noah's dove, okay, this is about as maybe uh, typological as I'm going to get here, but, you know, Noah's dove that he sent out to go and retrieve, you know, the olive branch, you know, what was that indicative of, you know what I mean? Because where do we see a dove showing up again? At Jesus' baptism. And so what I would say is that, that that dove was a symbol that the new creation had arrived for Noah, right? That the, or the new creation had emerged. And here's tangible proof of that. And so the Spirit uh, alighting on the Lord at his baptism, in a sense, it's almost like another, another symbolic indication that a new creation had dawned in Christ, who is the true ark of God, and that if you are in him, Right then, you too, like the ark dwellers, will be spared. You see. So, any questions? How many covenants are there with Noah? <laughs> the Gail's like, what? <laughs> Completely lost at this point. Oh, okay, so let, let's turn to uh, uh, Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six. There may be, um, yeah, there may be something to this, as you can see. And you somehow identify two covenants in Genesis with Noah. There is an initial covenant before the flood, a pre-diluvian covenant, and after the flood, a post-diluvian covenant. 
Uh, thus, we can say that God did promise in the first instance to save Noah and his family in preservation of the grace principle under the covenant, the covenant of grace, and God is setting apart the covenant community so that the promised seed would come. And Also, it's like to distinguish them, right? Um, look at this. After the flood was over, God would yet again focus on the covenant community, securing the blessings of Noah's seed through a particular line, namely Shem, and then the Tents of Japheth are also blessed by God. And so what's going on here is that God is securing his redemptive purposes through the line of Shem until it arrives at Abraham. Right? So we go from Shem to Abraham. So Noah, Shem, Abraham. And that is the reason why in Genesis chapter 6, before he promises not to destroy the world, he first promises to save a people. Right? covenant of Noah after the flood is not a covenant to save a people, right? It's to preserve the world, right? But in Genesis chapter 6, I don't know, where do we start? Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and wife and sons' wives with you, and every living thing, you know, uh, that is of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So, you know, it's, you know, you can go on and on and, and look at that, but um, it, could it be that there is, you know, instead of maybe a hard and fast two covenants, maybe it's a single covenant with sort of a, you know, partly inaugurated prior to the flood and then consummated after the flood. Uh, theologians kind of debate that, you know. Interesting, though, right? It's interesting to see that before the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah and his family, and it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not typified by the rainbow, right? He doesn't say here there's going to be a sign of the rainbow. There's, there's, it seems to be different, uh, and so in the one sense, you know, maybe this covenant here, initial covenant of uh, with Noah, in a sense, is almost like preserving the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15, that whole principle of grace that he saves a people for himself, right? Uh, and until it reaches consummation, now please stop me and rewind and uh, rewind the tape and let me know if we need to go over this, but until it reaches the consummation in the new covenant, the covenant of grace uh, will will be administered on two levels, right? It's kind of like, Level one, level two. And on this level, you will have a mixed multitude. This is important. And then uh, level two will be unmixed, right? What do I mean by that? Well, you know, um, yeah, the covenant of grace and the way that it is administered, right? Uh, How do you abbreviate administered like that? Sure, admin. Okay. So you see when you know God makes his gracious promise to the seed of the woman that this righteous seed, when it's talking about the descendants of the woman, not the messianic seed, but the descendants of the woman, this will follow sort of a, a, a on the surface level, it'll, it'll follow a typological line, right, uh, which is this pertaining to typology, right? And on this line, you're going to have a mixed multitude. So you're going to have that in the Abrahamic covenant. You're going to have that in the Mosaic covenant. You're going to have that in the Davidic covenant, in a sense, right? You're going to have a mixed multitude of saved and unsaved people, okay? Uh, not all Abraham's descendants will be saved. 
They'll be mixed. Not all the people in covenant under the old covenant with Moses will be saved. It's going to be mixed. But when you arrive at the antitype, right? That's right. When you arrive at the antitypical level, which I believe is the new covenant, right? Uh, then it's unmixed. You cannot be in the new covenant if you're unregenerate. Uh, the whole purpose of the new covenant is to regenerate you, right? It's evidence of your regeneration. When the Bible says he will write his law on their hearts, that is the language of regeneration. Um, but it will not happen until that new covenant is consummated, where you will be in a covenant administration that is going to be unmixed. Okay? So this is big, yeah. No, that's John 3 with Nicodemus. And he's referencing Ezekiel 26. Yeah. Or, wait, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a big divergence in covenant theology right here. This is the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians, you know. Uh, Presbyterians will say, no, the new covenant is still typological of the eschatological uh, reality of the covenant, meaning that right now, even the new covenant itself will be mixed, that unsaved and saved people alike will be in the new covenant we would say, absolutely not. (laughs) That's not what the new covenant promises. Matter of fact, the new covenant states, it will not be like the covenant that I made with your fathers, right? Um, He will not turn away from them to show them good. So if you're in the new covenant and God turns away from you to show you good, I mean, it's evidence you weren't saved, right? But, But that's not the promise of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant is that you will be in him. Isn't it amazing? Before Christ ratifies the new covenant, what does he first do? He removes Judas, right? He removes him out of the equation. And then he establishes his new covenant with his disciples, with the 11, because he said, you know, um, all of you are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you, right? Except, you know, the son of perdition, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. You know, Christ knows, (laughs) you know, that Judas was not saved, uh, not elect. I mean, he's like the prototypical reprobate of scripture, you know what I mean? Um, Fascinating, isn't it? I mean, even if I didn't get everything right, it's still fascinating. <laughs> Presbyterians are like, yeah, I know what you didn't get right. I just don't get where they're coming from. Now, I mean, I get it as long as, you, as long as you're looking at this line. right? As long as you're looking at this line, I get it all day. You know what I mean? Old covenant, yeah, saved, unsaved. You know, it's totally logical. You know what I mean? Abrahamic covenant, yeah, absolutely. Unsaved, un- saved, unsaved, right? But when you get to the, 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 the fulfillment of the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, like somebody say, like, the new covenant is the covenant of grace. I'll say, oh, okay, fine. Say whatever you want. All I'm saying is that the new covenant is new, <laughs> right? It's never been before, right? That's kind of the whole point. But there is an organic continuity with the covenant of grace, right? Any questions? Well, yes, ma'am. Going, you, you got to this point because you were talking about the different theological views that the covenant of Noah is either two covenants or one covenant. Right. 
Were, was this going to connect to that? Was um, I'm sure it was. <laughs> I think what I was saying is that is that in this initial covenant, it differs from the covenant of common grace, right? So after the flood, there's common grace. Prior to the flood, I think God is continuing this covenant with uh, Noah in order to preserve the principle of grace, right? And to save a covenant community through which the line will come, you see? I think that's the most important part, is that this is a covenant that will uh, preserve uh, his line. So once he secures the covenant community, well, then he has to secure the world in which they live, which is earth, and he has to protect the earth from passing away in order for the promise to continue, uh, you don't have the, you can't continue the promise if the earth vanishes. And so you have to make an initial promise, like, you know, all the, so, so, you know, because this is the reality, like all the world has literally gone to Hades, <laughs> right? That's the context of the covenant. Every man, you know, the, the, the intents of their hearts, continually evil, you know, right? The, the world has reached this, this, this tipping point of depravity, you know what I mean? But Noah found grace in the sight of God. Right. And so now we're being told, how is the promise going to go on and on and on? Because it seems like by the time you get to verse six, all is lost. You made a promise in chapter three, but then you got to verse six where he says, everyone's damned. (laughs) I mean, the world is lost. So how does God preserve his promise? Uh, Sovereign grace. Pardon the pun. (laughs) Um, Brother here, Scott, he has that's his company's name. Sovereign grace, and that's exactly what it is, is sovereign grace. And, and so that's what's going on in chapter 6, verse 7, especially verse 7, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? Um, obviously, that when it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, you know, that's a perfect reference to election and not to merit, right, necessarily. It's not that Noah earned the favor of the Lord, right? But he found the favor of the Lord. Now, this is a this is a slight and kind of a tricky subject. Let me go down here because this is significant. I'm going to skip so much of this data here, but I'm going to go down to um uh, let's see here. Can you believe I have all this stuff? It's like, what am I doing with my time? Ah, here it is. Ultimately, Noah himself becomes something of a proleptic. That What that means is just that you're just anticipating something, right? So sort of a proleptic paradigm of Christ's own covenant calling. Specifically, although common, the covenant of Noah prefigures the new covenant with Christ as Jesus, like Noah, is called to obey and deliver his people from judgment, resulting in perpetual blessing in a new world. Greg Nichols has pointed this out. He says, Noah is God's righteous servant, who by his obedience and work delivers his posterity, a renewed humanity from eschatological judgment and wrath. See, um, because we don't don't want to um, underestimate the fact that Scripture says Noah was a righteous man, that Noah obeyed, that God commissioned Noah and he obeyed. What did he commission him to do? To build the ark. So based on his obedience, 
right? He was allowed to save his posterity. Um, it says, this displays the nature of the, of the Christian economy. Jesus Christ is God's righteous servant who by his obedience delivers his posterity, a renewed humanity from the wrath to come. God makes a covenant with Jesus and then with his posterity, the community rescued from sin through Jesus' work. Uh, several people have sort of pointed this out. Um, let's see here. He says also, Noah, uh, this is Meredith Klein. Uh, this is really good. He says, Noah functioned in that typological situation as a prefiguration of the Messiah, whose obedience, rewarded with exaltation and kingdom glory, provided the ground for God's grace gift of redemption to his people. Um, so it's almost like, even though it wasn't the basis and I would not say it was true merit, right? He earned God's grace. He earned God's favor. But it attended, his, it attended the grace of God. It attended uh, uh, the fact that God, uh, that he found favor in the sight of God. He was not devoid of good works. He was not devoid of obedience. Uh, he says the covenant of grant, which, okay, we won't talk about that. That's a whole other uh, a train of thought there. The type of Christ, he says, he reminds us that the works principle is foundational in the program of redemptive grace in that the many are made righteous only by the obedience of the one. That's, see, that's what I think is right. He says, the one by, uh, who by virtue of his perfect righteousness found favor in the, in the Father's eyes. So it's almost like the simple obedience, it's not truly meritorious obedience, but just the character and the obedience that Noah had becomes like a prefigure of the strict, what they call, condign merit of Christ, which means that it is absolutely based on pure merit that anyone will have righteousness from God, right? Whereas with Noah, the idea is, yeah, he's saved by grace, but in that salvation, God also demanded of him that he be righteous, that he obey that he build the ark, and by doing that, that he bless his people. And in doing that, he becomes a foreshadow, right, of the righteous servant. Uh, the same thing is asked of uh, Abraham, right? We'll end with this. Turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. God always demands obedience from his covenant servants, always. Uh, and no less with Abraham. But was he saved by works? No. Abraham also found favor in the eyes of the Lord, it says, right? So it's not, that's not the way it works. But in terms of covenant blessing, God does set up a pattern. And look at what it says, chapter 17, verse 1. Now Abram was 90 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I love that. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, question. Was Abraham blameless? No. No. (laughs) Right? Was Noah blameless? Absolutely not. God cannot but demand obedience from his covenant servants. But all of these servants failed. But this is preparing us for God demanding obedience perfect obedience from the final covenant servant who is Jesus who will be fully pleasing to the Father. Right? Isn't that wonderful? It just shows you like, it just shows you that, well, it's what it says here, that the, uh, that the connection is one of a fortiori. Anybody knows what that means? 
Close. A fortiori. It just means like from the lesser to the greater. Uh, in other words, it's like we're going to the greater thing, right? And so it's from the lesser to the greater. Yeah. Correct. Correct. The, and, but he's still typifying the one who comes. Right. In Jesus, in the same way Noah's leading the uh, covenant people of God in that time, just into salvation. Yeah. And so Noah becomes a second kind of Adam. Right? G.K. Beale says this. Hope you guys can see that. God raised up another Adam like figure. Uh, God raised up other Adam like figures to whom his commission was passed on. We will find that some changes in the commission occurred as a result of sin entering the world. Adam's descendants, like him, however, would fail. Failure would continue until uh, there arose the last Adam, a last Adam, who would finally fulfill the commission on behalf of humanity. You guys know all that stuff already. You know. but, but that's what it is. I mean, the whole Bible is hardwired sort of like in an Adamic way. You know, first Adam, last Adam, all of that. It all prefigures Christ. That's why this section here uh, in my notes is, well, somewhere, Um, somewhere. There it is. The Christocentric nature of the covenant of Noah. The covenant of Noah is all about Christ. It's all about Christ. You know, he is the ark. He is the final Adam. Noah is not the last Adam. Christ is the last Adam. You know, he delivers his people because of his righteousness. All of those things, you know, it's his wrath that is coming. It is because of Christ, because of his parousia, his second coming. That is why the wrath is coming in fire. All of that. First um, Peter, Hebrews 11, Second Peter, they all connect Noah to Christ. Amen? Clear as mud. I'm so glad I have you guys. What would I do without you guys? Let's go to worship.